3. Last Port Taken from the journals of Max Landau Year 148 DD 35 days into our voyage I scrambled below deck, bouncing off the cannibal as I did, neither one of us sparing a moment to apologize. We reached our hammocks together, grabbed our luggage, and began to tear through them with little to no concern for organization. Spare clothes, teeth cleaners, and a nugget of chocolate went flying. I moved past a bar of soap I forgot I had, impatiently pushed aside a drawing of an old flame, and ignored completely a fat, juicy salami I had been sneaking bites of since the voyage began. I had my eyes only for the few things of value left to me. There was a silver necklace I had taken from my mother's bureau, the ring I had used to propose to several men and women in one night, and another ring that had garnered me a few yeses. And then there was the amber spider bracelet that was worth more than the rest of them combined. Hastily, I stuffed everything into a small knapsack, remembering to look around suspiciously as I did. But no one gave me any mind. They all had their own incriminating valuables to collect. I rushed back on deck not wanting to miss one second of the beautiful sight that grew ever closer. The moon was full, bathing the small island of Lastport in a silver light that made the place look as magical as I had imagined when I was a child. I took a deep breath. The air was foul, a mix of feces, sweat, and greed that combined into a familiar scent of the dishonest, untrustworthy, and dangerous. It smelled like home. But as I looked out onto the docks of Lastport, I realized I had never been further from home. In fact, it seemed I had left my world entirely and was now existing in a storybook from my childhood. The island had once been a well-to-do port of the Sadojian Empire, the last port before a ship set sail into the endless ocean. It was a place of hope and honor that would send you off on your glorious exploration of lands unknown, for years they would send ships out, and for years none would return. Soon the expeditions dried up, and Sados abandoned the small island and the even smaller town that lay snugly in its breast. But when law and order leaves a place, there are some that want to stay. The thieves, rogues, and pirates who so dazzled my imagination, they all stayed in Lastport, and now I was here amongst them. The city itself did not disappoint. It was appropriately shabby. Not a building looked stable enough to stand on its own. The docks were filled with traders and dockhands that were helpful enough, but whose knives would cut your purse or your throat with equal aplomb if they saw the benefit. The city was made of true rogues, one and all. I imagined our crew would fit right in. But as we neared the dock, I looked around for the man I knew would not. I found Willis sitting on the railing of the Queen, staring back the way we came. His eyes, so unfocused these past few months, were sharp and fastened upon one spot in the waves. I asked if he was coming ashore, and he nodded vaguely. I grabbed him by the arm. A drink and some firm ground underfoot would do him good, I said. We were going to die on the ship. No need to spend any more time on our decks than we had to. Willis laughed at that and followed me. It was good to hear him laugh again. As I led him away, I looked back towards the waves to find the familiar sight of Michael standing in the mist. I gave him a nod and followed my friend off deck, wondering who the spoiled son of the richest man in Sados could possibly see out there in the ocean. The tavern 
was called the lifted skirt. And it was magnificent. I suppose the best way to describe it is that it was a multiple-storied inn mixed with a brothel, cross-dressing as a burlesque show, undercut by black market dealings, all soaked in the worst brandy I have ever tasted that slowly became the best brandy I have ever tasted the more I tasted it. The place was built on top of an old dock, and no matter where you went in its many rooms, you could always hear the sloshing of water underfoot. We had seen it when we first disembarked from the Queen. I found myself sneaking glances its way every minute or so. It was like watching a catastrophe in motion. It was the tavern equivalent of someone tripping over their own feet and face-planting into the ground. You just couldn't help but stare. And it seemed I was not alone. For when we lashed the ship down and ignored Niles Parbat's instructions to be back on the ship the morning of the third day or they were leaving without us, we all moved as one to the lifted skirt and did not leave until well into the next morning. I must freely admit here in writing that I am something of an expert when it comes to taverns. I won't bore you with the details, but much to my mother's horror, I published a book entitled Gutter Speak which chronicled the torrid, squalid, and fascinating lives of those that frequent such places. By the time the Alabaster Queen set sail, I am proud to say that Gutterspeak was banned in all the major port cities of the Sadogian Empire. My monumental accomplishments aside, my time in taverns has taught me several important survival tactics, the most important of which is the ability to identify which type of drunk your comrades are and therefore which ones you should avoid at all costs. Willis, for instance, was a sad drunk. Not normally his brand, but I could see it in his sad puppy dog eyes that any laughter that came his way would curl up at his feet and quickly beg for death. Niles Parbat was a sipper. The first mate sat straight-backed at the bar and sipped at a glass of the vile brandy as if it were the finest of wines. Not really my style. Captain Destro was a sludge drinker. She stomped up to the bar, bought the two largest bottles in the place, and absconded to a dark corner where she glared menacingly at any who dared approach her. She was no option for tonight. It was in Jenna that I found my people. The squat chef was a gamer, the type of drunk who's all laughs and smiles until the moment you realize she's taken all of your gold. She ordered a bottle of brandy, downed the entire thing in one impressive gulp, then sat at the table and challenged anyone in hearing distance to a game she called Knives. The game was simple. Jenna put a fat, jingling purse at the center of the table, then invited any who wanted a part of the action to match her. Those who agreed would lay both their hands down flat on the table, spreading their fingers out wide. Jenna drew two of the sharpest, most evil-looking knives I've ever seen and proceeded to, there's no other word for it, dance the blades between the fingers of those who played. If she so much as nicked a hangnail, the money would go to the injured party. But if she finished the dance without a drop of blood, she kept everything. I had had a brandy or five by this point, so I threw my money in my hands down next to the bandaged head and glowing eyes of Mr. Stiggs, Bob the Cannibal, and a big ginger fellow who I'm sure had no idea what he was volunteering for. In the shadows, the bald Don watched with sharp eyes. We spread our hands out, and then Jenna danced. She started off slow, placing each blade between each finger with resolute accuracy. There was a rhythm to it, 
a beat that began to sound like music the further she got. Slowly, the knives sped up. Faster and faster they went until there was nothing but a blur. My eyes could not follow their movement, but never did the rhythm blend together. The beat was always clear and the knives always danced. They played off of each other, almost as if the right were romancing the left, pursuing her, enticing her, almost catching up and then missing her by inches. So beautiful was the dance that I quite forgot the danger to my own fingers and had to blink several times when it finished. Only the sinking feeling of lost gold bringing me back to reality. Bob let out a booming laugh, the ginger man a panicked breath, and even Stiggs chuckled a soft, velvety chuckle. Jenna downed another drink, grinned, and asked if we wanted to play again. But before any of us could respond, Dawn approached the table with two knives of her own in hand. May I try? she asked. Jenna laughed. Dawn was being absurd, she reasoned. After all, Jenna had created the dance herself, and no one but she knew the rhythm. But Dawn asked again. Jenna shrugged, saying it wasn't her that Dawn should be asking. Stiggs nodded almost immediately, confirming his participation. Bob took a moment longer and then rose from his seat, shaking his head. The ginger had fallen unconscious, but luckily his hands still lay right where he had left them. I also stayed. Don't ask me why, I have no real reason, other than the fact that when drunk, I find it hard to back out of anything. I had a feeling this game would end in blood, and I would be damned if I were to miss it. John nodded her thanks to Stiggs and I, and took Jenna's place at the table. Thinking back on it, I may have been a bit foolish. Jenna's dance had been the most complicated bit of blade work I had ever seen. It most likely had taken years to perfect, and Don had seen it but once. But Brandy has its own reason. Dawn started off slow, very slow, sliding each knife into place with the tenderness of a lover exploring someone else's body for the first time. Each movement, though, was perfect, and after she had one flawless go-around, she began to pick up speed, slowly at first, and then faster and faster. The knives dipped in and out of fingers, never touching anything but the wood of the table. Splinters flew into the air, but never blood and Dawn moved with such grace that I found myself unable to breathe. She ended with an emphatic slam of the knife between my fingers. The table stared in awe. Dawn looked at Jenna expectantly. I thought the squat cook would be angry her trick was so easily duplicated, but Jenna surprised me. She was grinning. Her eyes bled a hunger I had not seen before. She shoved the ginger off his stool. He collapsed on the floor, snoring loudly. And then Jenna challenged Dawn to a new dance. Jenna called it battle knives. They would still use our fingers as dance steps, only this time they would both dance, and their knives would interact. Each move had to be perfect, and the first one to make a mistake had to drink. Dawn nodded her agreement, and Jenna began to teach her the dance. It took only five minutes for Dawn to master it. Since I have looked back on the event sober, I can only marvel at the woman's genius and fail to imagine what she could do in actual combat. It wasn't long before the knives began to dance again. Four blades flashed through the air, clashed together, threaded the needle of our fingers, flipped up into the air and caught again, spun around their hands and slammed back into the table. Sparks flew when they met, but neither woman would give ground. They continued like this for minutes or hours, stopping only to down another shot of the exquisite brandy. 
I was numb from the beauty of it. But after several dozen drinks, the movements became less precise, but more frenzied. You could feel a tension build in the room. A great crowd had gathered around us, transfixed by the blade dance, dreading and hoping for some blood. But the mistake, it came, finally, when Don slammed her knife down onto Stiggs' index finger, cutting it sheer off. A gasp cut through the room, and a drunk Don looked down, confused. It was almost as if she could not believe a blade had done something she had not wanted it to. But believe it or not, there it was. Stiggs' finger floating in a dark pool of pitch-black blood. No one screamed, least of all Stiggs, whose bandaged face betrayed no hint of pain. Instead, he calmly picked the finger up and inspected it curiously. Then he placed it back on the stub of his hand, twisted, grunted, and sighed. When he removed his hand, the finger was attached, good as new. His eyes crinkled. So I guess I win, he said with his soft, silky voice. The room was silent, no one truly understanding what we had seen. Then, as if they were one creature, the crowd erupted into applause, screaming adulation and placing bets for the next dance. Jenna and Don prepared their blades, but staring at Stiggs' finger, I realized I had finally met my limit and excused myself from the table. Ocean was written and directed by Keenan Ellis. Ambient sound designed by Sword Coast Soundscapes. Check out our other podcast, The Phone Booth, which explores a world in which 99% of every human being on the planet has a superpower. Also, if you like our shows and want to help us make more, please consider becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash foolsgallery. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week on The Endless Ocean. <laughs>